Welcome to M Pavilion. Uh, welcome to M Relay. Um, I'd like to uh, say thank you to Jennifer Zelinska for curating today um, and acknowledge that the idea was uh, first proposed by Natalie King in 2014. Um, also, of course, I'd like to thank our creative director, Robert Buckingham, for making everything possible and um, for Naomi Milgram, um, whose foundation is the, the reason that this whole thing began. Um, I'd also like to acknowledge that we are gathered on the land of the Bunurong people um, and acknowledge that um, sovereignty of this land was never ceded. Um, this session is about pause, so I'd like you all to close your eyes, empty your minds and come back because we're going to talk about it all now. Um, your host today is Nayuka Gori. Um, Nayuka is an Aboriginal uh, activist and writer and she is well known for her work in the non-profit sector and, uh, and her incredible work for the, um, the organisation Women of Letters. Um, Nika will take you through today and first up she's going to be talking to Kenny Piddick. So I'll welcome her to the stage and then we'll get started. Okay. Oh, wow. Right. Um, I hope the laptop's okay. Can everyone hear me? Neat. Cool. So do I just like say my yarn and then Kenny comes on stage and then, okay, totally great. Awesome. Um, so I've been thinking about, actually, before I kick off, um, I'd also like to acknowledge the Boonarung people of the Kulin Nation. Just, um, Last week was Invasion Day, so the 26th of January. Um, and I'll talk a, a bit about what days we decide to mark a bit later on. Um, I think acknowledgements of country are like one of those things that like people kind of stumble on them or it like feels like this inconvenience or like it's just a thing that we say. Um, uh, yeah, I just wonder what would happen if, sometimes I like to imagine what would happen if like Annie Caroline, a Boonarung elder, came here and was like, can everyone leave? And if people would actually leave? Um, anyway, something I think about a bit. Um, so pausing is, pausing was really strange. Um, yeah, as a concept, I was like, huh? Because um, it's not a thing that I have thought about much. When I thought about pause, I thought about the old VCR, um, like when you had videotapes back in the days and like you'd press floors, pause and it would kind of flicker. Um, but the more I thought about it, like the concept of pausing or stopping or having a break, um, the more I realised that it tells us a lot about either a person or a group of people, how people pause or how a person pauses. So I thought about like growing up and where, where I saw pauses throughout my own life. Um, and for the most part, the ability to pause or the choice to pause for most people around me was a luxury. It wasn't a thing that people just did. Um, pausing was seeing some like rich mates, um, their families going to like Burley Heads. I grew up in Brisbane, um, going to Burley for, um, for like school holidays or like maybe if they were really rich going to like Bali um, or pausing was a few parents like in their 50s they'd take time off work to go and do a uni degree and then that was their pause 
or like might take up sculpture or something. Um, and now as an adult or like a young adult or whatever I am, um, I see like mindfulness and like, oh, like yoga um, or like hip hop yoga is a thing now. Um, or like apps that remind you to breathe. Um, which is all this like, guess manufactured ideas of pausing or like solitude or serenity that still kind of like helps capitalism do its thing, I suppose, or whatever. Then I, so that was like the, I don't know, like if you have the luxury to pause. Then I started thinking about like, in my own family, when did I see pausing? And pausing was not a thing that was done. It was kind of like, unless you kind of had to do it or it was kind of thrust upon you that you had to stop. So that might be like divorce or death or illness or violence. And the pauses were so brief that like, if you blinked, you'd miss it. So yeah, it's been, it's been really weird to reflect on pausing like on an individual level. And then when we, we had Invasion Day last week, and it got me thinking about the kind of collective pauses that we all take as a nation, what we decide to pause on. Um, so whether that's like a minute of silence or a public holiday, a race that stops a nation. Um, like these kind of pauses tell us, can tell us a lot about what a society values at, at a particular time. Um, yeah, so it was this, it's this weird, strange concept, pausing, and it wasn't just for videos, it's like for people too. Um, but those are the things that I've sort of been thinking about. And we've got like, you've got like a really interesting group of people today as well. So we're all going to be thinking about pausing in different ways. Um, yeah, that's kind of where my head's at at the moment with it. Do I need to do anything else? Is that? Okay, yeah, pause. So um, I believe this is the third event of the day. We, I think we've got one more coming up after this. Um, yeah, so this is the third, and Relay Pause. Um, shall we welcome Kenny up? Yeah. Um, are we all familiar with the format of this, of this discussion thing? Yeah, so I'm gonna interview Old Mate and then old mate's gonna interview someone else and then you, know, you get the drift. And then eventually it'll come back to me and then we'll all laugh and cry. Um, Hi. Hey. Um, do you wanna tell us a bit about yourself, mate? I did some little stalking about you, so. Okay, why don't you tell me about me? Oh no, I'll, I'll, I'll do it, I'll do it. Yeah, you, you <laughs> always tell the story best. <laughs> uh, there's not much to tell. Um, uh, so I'm 28, uh, I grew up in the Dandenong Ranges in Victoria, um, uh, studied art at TAFE for two years and then I had spine surgery actually so I spent a year uh, in bed, so that was, that was a pause on my life um, in a very significant way. Um, then I, I did uh, four years honours studying fine art painting at the VCA, uh, graduating in 2013. Uh, and then, yeah, since then I've just been exhibiting and, and making books and sculptures and drawings and paintings um, full-time. 
Although, yeah, I also work two days a week collecting shopping trolleys at a supermarket, <laughs> um, which feeds into my work, but it, you know, it also, on a practical level, is, is, it gives me the freedom to not have to make commissions. You know, I can kind of have a separation between making the things I want to make and doing things for money as well. Um, yeah, uh, I have brown hair. Um, yeah, uh, single. <laughs> is <there> anything else? <laughs> uh, this yeah. is starting to sound like an OK Cupid okay, profile. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, in thinking about pause, um, as an artist, you kind of don't. It's hard to switch off sometimes, uh, and to take the time to pause. Uh, but I got sick this week, um, and that's generally when I do have to stop, is when you physically have to rest. Um, uh, I ate some bad chicken. Um, mm, that'll do it. Yeah. yeah uh, thinking about paws as well, um, uh, I've just moved into a house that has a cat. Cats have paws. Um, uh, but I never, I never liked cats until I had a cat. Um, and now I love this cat, and uh, but I've been reading that um, cats have some bacteria in them that apparently they use it on it's a, it's for, they use it for mouses mice um, and it's to make them the, the the mice more comfortable being around a cat and then the cat's able to catch them but it works on humans too and so apparently like two thirds of people have this thing where they're like they fall in love with their cats. So I don't know if I actually like this cat or I'm just like, now I'm un under like, the spell, yeah. Yeah, manipulation. But yeah. We have two cats and I don't really like the other one. So I think it's, I think I'm not, but do you, yeah. like, do you like cats? Well, yeah, I live in a share house and it's like, uh, I really hope the owner isn't here today because we're meant to get rid of the cat. Mm. Anyway, so I, I have friends who have a cat in a different share house that I am not a part of and yeah, everyone likes this cat. I'm like, I don't get it. But anyway, um, anyway, so back to pause um, <laughs> and not AWS. Um, so you mentioned before you kind of were forced. I imagine you would have been quite young. I did read your um, blog. You did a blog piece in 2013. Um, oh, I could probably work that out if, I, if my brain was quick enough to do the maths. Um, that's four years ago. So you were like 25? Oh, I when know. I had the surgery? Yeah, you wrote a... Actually, I wrote that much later. Oh. I, I, I was 20, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah, and even that blog post, I kind of talked about it in a jokey sort of way. Yeah, like, it was I found it really confronting funny. to, like, I still haven't really dealt with it in a serious yeah. way. Like, I, yeah. Um, yeah, so, yeah, I was, I was 20. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and it was hard, I, you know, it's it uh, to be bedridden, you know. Um, it's not uncommon though, I, you know, I know a lot of people have all sorts of similar and worse things, but um, for me, yeah, it was really difficult, yeah. How does, so like a year being bedbound and now like you're an artist and creating and what role does pause, whether, you know, the thing that happened in the past or now play in your creativity or yeah, your work, if at all. Um, 
Yeah. Like pausing as in reflecting or... Um, What's a pause for you, actually? Let's define pause. I guess I try and make time to see my friends. <laughs> you know, like that's the pause and time for family. I guess Christmas time and that kind of end of year thing is when a lot of people pause. But I wasn't able to this year so much because um, I was working towards an exhibition. And so a lot of the time, the time off is scheduled around your commitments. Um, uh, it's hard. I'm really bad at it. I need to do more of it, I think. It's a balance that's really hard to kind of figure out, I think. Um, yeah, I don't think there's any answer, like easy answers, uh, and I think it's different for everybody, um, uh, and it changes. <laughs> like, I mean, I'm speaking vaguely, but I think it is—it's a vague thing. Mm. Yeah, I think it means different things for different people. Like, a pause for some people could be like, I don't know, going camping, or for others, it might just be like. Instead of doing 20 things this week, I'm going to do 18 things this week. Or Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's, it's good to do less and do better at those things. Um, do you feel like pausing is self-indulgent at all? Uh, not self-indulgent necessarily as much as it is scary. Um, because when you let things go, you know, they, it's hard to get them back. <laughs> like, or that you miss things and you don't know. You can fall behind. I think that's the fear. It's more of trying to keep up. Uh, mm. But at the same time, you don't. You have to. You, you can't be too impulsive. Um, that's, I'm very. I'm under the pressure here. I don't know. Um, uh. What would like? This could be an OK Cupid question. What would be the ideal pause? Like, if you could plan the best pause ever, what would it? What would it entail? What would you do? Oh, okay. Well, I just had it, kind of, actually. I um, I'm in an exhibition at the moment, um, in Singapore. Okay, so, big deal. Well, um, well, it was great because I got to like go there. I was I was really nervous about going because I, I you know, it meant that I had to leave the studio for two weeks, uh, which I don't like to do. Mm. Um. So I kind of, it was good for me to get kicked out of the studio, I guess. And then um, it was ideal because I was having this exhibition and making work while I was over there. But at the same time, because I'm in a whole new country, I was kind of, um, it would be silly not to just explore and wander and kind of just have some fun and, yeah, see what was going on in that culture and what was there to offer. Uh, so I think that was ideal, um, for just like two weeks, uh, yeah, that's good, an exhibition somewhere, um, I think that's my dream, just to keep travelling for shows, um, uh, yeah, yeah, what about you, can I ask, can I ask you a question, the same question? Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, sure, you can. I'm going to say yes. I'm going to call it. Thank you. Um, the, okay, the best pause. The best pause would be, um, oh, I think about this a lot. For me, a, it's not even a pause. It's just like perhaps utopia, if such a thing will ever exist, 
is like a black matriarchal commune somewhere, um, perhaps in my country, and I go back and then just like surrounded by all the best women and yeah, maybe like weave. I don't know how to weave. I'll learn how to weave and learn how to speak my language instead of this colonizer's language and would just like eat good food and yeah. um, maybe read, like read all the Harry Potters again. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the only time I'd like allow concessions for English. Yeah. Harry Potter. I agree actually, like reading and watching movies and things like that definitely is, um, I feel guilty doing that sometimes if it's not directly connected to something I'm working on, but I really enjoy doing it so I should do more of it. Do you feel like, so we're like approximately the same age, you're 20-something, I'm 20-something. Um, how do you think our generation perceives pausing or like perhaps feels guilt or how are our, how is the way that we see a pause different to say our parents or grandparents? Because I'm just imagining my grand, my big black grandfather in the audience right now and he's like, oh, what's your shit? Like, I don't think he would be like, oh, what's pausing? This is all just whatever. Um, yeah. yeah, like what are the, yeah, what are our generational differences? Also, Jen, wherever you are, just feel free to ding, ding, ding when we're, you know. Um, ah, quickly. <laughs> yeah, I think my, uh, my parents are the same. They, you know, they work and they work. And when they're not at work, they're working on the house. Um, uh, but they're not unhappy people in any regards. So, um, Is that our minute? Yeah. Oh, great, yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm not sure. I don't even know how to speak for myself, let alone anyone else, so it's difficult. Um, uh, maybe I'll just pause for a second. Um, well, you did that. Yeah. Well, I guess like our generation, we're increasingly underemployed, so we've got like more... Yeah, kind of. Right, yeah, like yeah. The, the workforce is changing and the world is changing, so I guess the nature of taking a break or pausing will also change as well. Yeah, possibly. yeah. But also jobs are changing in a lot of ways too, to reflect, yeah. Mm. Um, so we've got like maybe 30 seconds left. Did you want to leave us with any other thoughts? Um... I don't think so. <laughs> A plus for honesty. Yeah. Give it up for Kenny, guys. Thanks. Mm. All right. So where do I stand? If So I'm moderating sort of-ish. Do I just stand on the side just in case? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I move. Hello. Hi, everyone. Thank you. Hey, Sue. Hey, Kenny. Um, uh, is there anything you would like to... Any first thoughts on the idea of pause at all? Yeah. Uh, I should just, uh, just briefly introduce myself because oh, yeah. that seems to be what we are doing today. And... I am a filmmaker and I have been for about the last 35 years and I do it because I love it and I make, um, I love storytelling. So I do feature films, 
I do documentary films, digital media. Right now I'm helping my friend Charlotte who's um, doing a web series for iView. And when, you know, you're, you're working as a kind of creative, and I bet you get this too, Kenny, it's sort of like, well, you just keep going because it's kind of what you do and what you love doing. And when you're, a, particularly as a producer, you know, self-employed, there's nobody there to say, okay, time out, time off. You know, you actually have to create your own pauses. Yeah. Very, very consciously, because otherwise they don't happen. And how I'm one of those baby boomers, probably like your parents, that just kept working, 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 finish a big film like, you know, a Japanese story. The pause came, I broke my arm, completely snapped it, you know, and my own fault was skiing and, you know. Um, or on another film, my dad died, so I stopped everything. Like, it, these kind of dramatic, there wasn't a pause, they were breaks. So it was kind of like, okay, you've got to be that drastic to get time out. Yeah. I'm trying um, to change that now. I love this idea of pause. Yeah, it's tough because you're kind of working on your own momentum, aren't you? And mm. sometimes to slow that down can be confronting or seem counterintuitive. Um, uh, so you're doing a web series. So that's kind of a shift. Oh, I'm helping out on it. I'm actually yeah. location managing. Um, this time I'm not producing. So that's kind of a pause. Yeah. But I have to say I have just had the best pause in the entire world, which is kind of why I kind of look like this, got a tan, feeling fantastic, because I just, I literally uh, created that pause where I just stopped for a month, which was January. And I went down to Tasmania to a little um, seaside village called Bishano, which is on the east coast. I don't know if anyone's been there. And base myself there, you know, for a month, you know, to do some work, but also just to be there and have, just create that space to stop and to kind of read again, dream again, imagine again, get bored and go surfing. <laughs> which is kind of where I started thinking about the pause. Because when you're surfing, and I bodyboard, and you're out on the back, waves come in sets. And, you know, you've got a beautiful sea, and down there, I tell you, it's gorgeous. And the waves kind of come, you know, maybe every 10 minutes, sometimes 15 minutes, and you're kind of out there waiting for the next set. And they're usually about three that come in. And you just hope that, you know, you're going to catch one of these and have, after all of that waiting, this kind of moment of, and it's only like 10 or 15 seconds of just sheer, unadulterated pleasure and joy, you know, whizzing down the, you know, if you, if you really ride one properly, um, which every now and then, mostly you don't, but every now and then you get one. Any sharks? No sharks. Okay, just No sharks. Yeah. But, um, but the th point about it is while I was sitting out there, I had the 10 or 15 minutes to think about the pause. And I realised that it's actually in the pause that you create the anticipation and you create, you know, the, the, um, the pleasure of the experience. It's in the wait. It's in the, the gaps and then the release of the pause yeah. in the moment. It's like that the... Actually, so to, together, you know... The build-up to yeah. Star Wars Episode Seven was always yeah. going to be better than episode seven yeah you got it that's yeah. life it's yeah. you know the pause is this kind of really really special thing and yeah. i think we've actually forgotten 
what the pause is about because we just live in this continuous stream of information yeah. and data and news feeds, yeah, news feeds and 24-hour cycle of news and so on yeah. that, in fact, we've become terrified of the pause. In fact, I think the pause is kind of on its way to extinction. Well, one thing you mentioned about being in Tasmania, yeah. you let yourself get bored. I think yeah. that people don't really do that so much anymore. Once you've got a mm. phone in your hand, mm. you'll, you'll do that rather than sit and think. Do you know how hard it is to get lost now? Yeah. It, it used yeah. to be really easy to get lost. And, of course, with devices, we, we don't get lost anymore. And you know what was so fantastic about getting lost is quite apart from you'd have that kind of moment, you know, you'd have the anxiety however long that lasted, and it wasn't fun. It's no fun being lost. But then you get found or you find. And it's, like, it's that same thing. It's, you know, it's just the release that comes. Yeah, yeah. We, we don't have so much now. I think that's very true. Um, although I grew up where there was no phone reception for a bit, so that was always tricky, yeah. even when, you know. Um, uh, well, I think the pause has become such an anathema. You know, I mean, really, I date it back from 1979, which is when baby boomers, you know, invented um, CompuServe and the internet, and we start, you know, really started this online world and this online experience that we all find ourselves immersed in. And what we value now is connectivity and speed, often over the, the very content itself. Like, we just need to be connected to feel good and to feel secure. And, in fact, actually, we feel very anxious a lot of time about it. And so when a pause happens on our technology, you know, we've actually even invented a new symbol for it, which is the spinning wheel of death. Mm. You know, it, it, like it's, it's, it brings, you know, fear and loathing and anathema to see the pause when we're online. Yeah, just total yeah. frustration, mm. yeah. But I tell you, um, like, we as storytellers, and whether you're a musician or you're a composer, you're a director, you're a film editor, you're a dancer, we, you know, we know we cannot tell stories without the pause. The pause is absolutely integral because it's about rhythm and it's about understanding, you know, the, the use of time and what you can do with... Um, with the placement of the pause. So uh, I thought I'd bring, you know, just from my own experience, and a number of you probably have seen films like, um, you know, Strictly Ballroom. We're going back a few years ago. But to me, this is a perfect example of the use of the pause. At the end of Strictly Ballroom, after all the trials and tribulations and so on, you know, the Paul Mercurio dancer and um, his partner finally are in the big grand finale, um, dance competition at the end and they're they're magnificent they're showing their stuff we know that you know they're going to hopefully win this comp competition and it's fabulous but then one of their rivals who really doesn't want to see this happens actually pulls the plug the power plug right. and stops the sound so you know th this wonderful dance sequence comes to a crashing halt it just stops because there's no music and every they're just standing there utterly utterly stranded and this goes on maybe for about, it feels like forever, but it's probably about five or six seconds. And everybody, you know, the audience, we're all going, oh, God, what, what is going to happen? And then there's this beautiful moment where the mother of the Paul Mercurio character just starts this clap singly, just a single clap like that. And then the audience start clapping and joy, and they build a rhythm. And that's enough to get 
the two dancers moving again and then the, the PowerPoint is put back in, the music starts up and then there's this fantastic finale. Now that is a perfect example of what filmmakers do in just about every film if they're good and Jill Billcock, the editor and obviously Baz Luhrmann knew what they were doing but how you create through the use of the pause that incredible anxiety followed by the release that you know, the pause can give you. Totally. I always remember reading, um, and it's such a cliche, but you know, On the Road, the Kerouac book. Yeah. And I, my, my, I got bored of that, like, maybe halfway, three quarters of the way through, because it doesn't have those pauses like you're talking about. It's just, you know... Continuous. We got spring. in the best car, and we went to the best party, and we met the best people. Mm. And, like, that... You had to be there at the time. Enthusiasm <laughs> for the whole book, it, it, you need ebbs and flows, I think. Yeah. Um, There's a kind of really nice moment too. I, I don't know if many people um, here have seen uh, La La Land. Has anyone seen that film? Okay. There's a really interesting use of the pause and the music score there as well. And that is in the moment of moving from the, the kind of reality of these two lives of, you know, the, the boy meets girl in Hollywood trying to pursue their dreams against all odds. But then they have this moment of grace where there's a dance sequence that happens in the Hollywood planetarium. And there's a moment where they're waltzing, you know, on the ground, and then the music just pauses. And it pauses, again, probably for about three seconds maximum. And then what happens when the music starts again, they lift, they literally start, they lift into this um, starry firmament, which is the kind of, you know, the night sky of the planetarium. And it's, you know, the most wonderful use of music. But if you look at, you know, the great concertos and so on going all the way back, you can see how pauses are absolutely integral to the way you appreciate uh, a piece of music as well. Well, that's, isn't that what they say about jazz? It's not mm. the notes they play, it's the notes it's they the in don't between. play. Yeah. yeah, it's the negative um, space that sits in between. Yeah. So they're like dramatic pauses. Yeah. or That's where the pause becomes mm. as much as active as the, the action. Mm. Um, uh, but I think we need that in our lives. Like, I, I think we need to bring back the pause. Uh, you know, we've kind of got so hectic and so connected that um, we're actually uh, afraid of the pause now. And so my plea today was, uh, let's all think about the pause, actually, and how we can get it, you know, back into our lives. How do you think, mm. what are some steps... Mm we could take in that direction? I think, well, for a start, giving ourselves permission. I think it's wonderful you gave yourself permission to just take those two weeks in Singapore yeah. and be open again. Because, um, you know, here you are in a new environment and, yes, it takes you out of the studio, so it is kind of like a break and possibly came at the wrong time, all of that. Yeah. But the fact that you took that, um, that opportunity just to kind of be open to what's... Um, yeah, I mean, it, it, it is important to leave the studio too just mm. because you can't make work about life if you don't have one, yeah. you know, like, it's, it's this kind of <laughs> balance. No, well, that, that's yeah. true. You've got to have a bit of a life. Yeah. All I know is that um, I produced a film called The Dressmaker that took seven years and it was seven years of unrelenting stress. <laughs> I can say that. I used to call it The Stressmaker. <laughs> that was my own <laughs> title for it. Um, that also brought me great joy, and of course, um, particularly when audiences connected with it, it there was you know it was wonderful. Yeah. But it was unrelenting, and I made a very very conscious decision to create a pause. And I use the word create really deliberately because you have to do a very conscious 
creation of, of that time in order to, to bring it back into your life and not have a break. Because unfortunately, when I have a break, I break stuff. <laughs> so I don't, I don't want to do any more breaks. I want to do more pauses in my life. Um, well, that's a, it was a, a great film. And Thank I, you. I've seen a few of your work and I really am a big fan. So it's, Thank you. it's great to meet you. Thanks, Kitty. Um, thanks for... Thank you. Um, yeah. I'm going to head off. Thank you. So please come up, Amy. <laughs> Hi, Amy. You're an architect. So tell us a little bit, firstly, about yourself. Um, so, yes, I'm an architect. I have um, my own practice, small practice, called Muir Architecture. And I, uh, prior to studying architecture, studied interior design at RMIT University. And I think um, that course at the time was very architecturally based. And so it was an incredible... Um, course to do um, and partway through that went overseas and studied architecture for a year in the UK and I think all those all those little things that happen in life I mean um, studying in the UK happened by accident I would you know in terms of studying architecture um, always thought I'd be an architect but got seduced by interior design um, and I think those things in life um, actually force decisions that then mm. in effect become um, or activate, you know, this sort of this notion of pause. Because I think pause is also this idea of poise. Oh. You know, sort of um, how we uh, how we think about things. Sometimes you're forced into doing stuff, but then you're um, there's also a point at which you have to make a decision and which way you're going to go. And I think that decision is is something is a condition of pause in a way, decision making. Um, I would I would say. But yeah. So anyway, went on studied architecture and uh, worked in practice for um, quite a number of years, and then established um, Muir Mendes, and then went on to establish Muir Architecture um, just recently. I've looked at some of your work online, and I have to say. I bet when people walk past something like the law house, mm. they pause mm. in engaging with your work. Um, can you just describe that that particular house and why it's so fun? It would stop people in their tracks when they walk past. Yeah, so that was um, the first project for the practice, and it was um, primarily came out of wanting to build as well. Um, so not just design, but actively build it. My um, ex partner and I. Um, literally built it on weekends for three and a half years. Can you describe Design um, was very much about its context. So it's a tiny little um, one-way street and cottages, so little um, row cottages down the, down the street. Um, we were sort of the, the poor sister next to this white one-bedroom cottage and then there was a the modernist 1970s brick. And so it was about how do you um, mediate between those two conditions. And so it's a black facade, steel plate facade. Um, it's got exactly, it's picked up on all the nuances of um, the original house. Everything proportionally is exactly what the original house was, yet it's um, been completely stripped back and it is plate steel effectively and there's a, what we referred to as the drawbridge which um, let in curated light to the front bedroom and that effectively cover, um, uh, closes up the entire facade as well. Um, but it was very much about 
we had to we had to put a second story in, but we didn't want it to be revealed from the street. So how do you conceal things within form, and um, rather than revealing them? And so we talk about this idea, the condition of blankness, and okay. um, and sort of stepping back, you know, being recessive on the street, even though this idea that um, in doing that potentially was um, agitating that that recessiveness. So is a condition of blankness is that almost like a conceptual pause? Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, it's interesting because I think um, blankness is also, um, it's in a way, uh, it's allowing for the next thing to occur. Um, and so very much that uh, the facade was about stripping back and then the, the idea of um, going into the interior, which actually was an inverted version of what the, um, the terrace house once was, which was very much an internalised, no natural light, um, you know, very, very um, tight, tight spaces, and it was about actually opening that up. And so internally it becomes a very different condition to what the external condition implies. And I think, once again, yeah, that idea of pause is the anticipation, which we were sort of talking about previously, about that idea of anticipation about what happens next. Um, yeah, and what gets revealed. Yeah, I, I understand how pause works in relation to time, but you're working in relation to space, so I was really mm. curious to see your thoughts about pause in relation to use of space. Yeah, and I think um, I think pause um, volumetrically when we talk in architecture. And I, I often talk about this in terms of the role of civic architecture. Civic architecture has a, a civic re responsibility, effectively, and there's something really lovely that comes out of civic architecture volumetrically from an internal perspective. Um, we have the opportunity, uh, as opposed to in commercial architecture, which is very much about delivering um, particular space and area for a particular use. Civic architecture has the opportunity um, to engage with people and program and the idea of volume um, and the connection between floors and, um, you know, uh, using void space, um, uh, compression, expansion, uh, these all become real tools in terms of navigating people through space, um, understanding the scale of space. Um, I think, you know, the way that we bleed space as well and stop space, they become important sort of, you know, you're talking about telling a story, the narrative. Um, when we're designing an architecture, there's very much this idea of how do you move through space? How do you... How do you articulate that in a manner that people are going to then move to the next space or want to move through that, that building? Um, so they become important devices, I suppose. And when we talk about expansion, contraction, I would say that they allow for this idea of, you know, there is this very much a movement that occurs. Mm. Um, and that movement, I think, is, I, I would akin to, you know, the idea of pause. You know, how do we... How do we slow something down or how do we actually accelerate it? And Well, I have to say the other piece of work that you did that gave me, again, pause for thought, mm. and I, there's another thing about pause, is that it enables room for thought. But mm. the, the, the other one that really captured my eye was your doghouse. Oh. <laughs> and th this is fantastic, a completely rethinking about why the hell do we build kennels or dog houses in the shape of houses that we live in when in fact there could be another whole way of approaching this and that really gave me pause for thought when I saw what you came up with so maybe you could tell you know yeah, yeah. oh this is so um Ross Gardam and um myself were um asked by Monument Magazine to do a you know basically a design exercise um and the brief was design a dog house 
And um, when I was studying my final year in uh, interior design, I was actually looking at palliative care and as my major project. And um, so there was a lot of talk about death, you know, and in terms of what's happened historically in terms of our response to death and over, you know, the last hundred years, how that's shifted and changed. And anyway, my, my tutor, Roger, said, oh, I've got this, yeah, I had a terrible thing happen to me because we were talking about dogs and, you know, love of dogs. And he said, my, my Kelpie, um, was hit by a tram and I'd been out drinking it was late at night and I didn't know what to do with her and so I picked her up and I put her in a dog kennel and next morning got her out and was going to pull her out but of course rigor mortis had kicked in couldn't get her legs out the side and so I had to dismantle this dog house around her and um, so there, there was this sort of you know and he was saying oh, it was terrible you know this, dismantling this piece of crap around this dog and you know and so it's, it for me it's sort of we started Ross and I started talking about well why how what is the evolution of the dog the dog you know the working dog um, on the farm you know occupies um, the bit of tin or the, the hollow log um, what how do dogs actually occupy space and the idea that a dog you know rotates before they sit down or settle they do several turns and then then they settle down and so the form of this was very much about how the dog um, sits within space and then it was also well the dog dog clearly doesn't need to be in a house it needs its own space and what is its space well it has an uh, affinity to landscape and so the idea that this was a concrete shell that effectively we might just wait for that so plane to go over so we can hear we have to do all this all the time on set <laughs> wait for the planes to go um, so it was a concrete shell and um, effectively, you know, the mounds that we see here on the left-hand side of the pavilion, it was basically um, wedged into a mound and the landscape would conceal basically that doghouse. And it was concrete, so it was effectively, you know, a very solid, rigid structure and the idea was that it could become its final resting place as well. And so, you know, the, this idea of bunkers and, you know, that sort of language um, also came into it. And so it was very much about it as a dog rather than it as a human's projection mm. of a dog. Yeah, that's fantastic. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Ross and I had great fun with that. That's good. <laughs> so just what really comes to mind, you know, when you were thinking about today and what you wanted to bring today, what were the sort of things coming to mind about pause for you? Yeah, I think... Um, I. It's funny because I have huge respect for your work and, and um, it's, um, I think, in life uh, when we talk about, um, and, you know, this idea of, um, I talk about ritual a lot and I think we have a lot of rituals in life and, um, and how we actually, A, go about making decisions about how we celebrate those rituals but also the spaces that we choose to celebrate in and um, you know often sort of talk about the church and, and what is the role of the church I'm an atheist but um, you know how do we actually redefine or reconsider what the role of the church is within a community how do we how do we see that as a construct I mean it's it's always been historically a very important mm. construct um, and those values obviously have an attachment to architecture as well and how do we actually start to reconsider those and, and rethink them and um, and then we think about you know the cemetery what does the cemetery imply you know um, these spaces are um, very much engaged in the act of pausing and they're very much engaged in the act of 
of um, ritual and, you know, and ritual has a particular time and presence and historically, you know, it's embedded in a history that, that implies a, a time almost or a pace to it, if that mm. makes sense. And it has implications of how it is to be used. Um, and how do we, now that we've, you know, we've got issues with cemeteries in terms of landfill and, you know, how do we, how do we actually acknowledge body and how do we, how do we um, you know, remembrance, you know, mm. and when we go up to... Um, uh, up to Melbourne Cemetery, you know, there's so many um, graveyards that are going into disrepair because they're, you know, <laughs> they're, they're no time has moved on. So how do we how do we control this thing called time? And I think pause is absolutely and utterly tied up in that. Um, yeah, so that's so yeah. it is an important value. Absolutely. And I think, you know, and, and, um, at university getting the students mm. to look at a truck stop and mm. the studio is called pausing. And, you know, how does, how does mm. the truck stop, you know, this idea of truck drivers interacting with architecture when their architecture is affected, their home is the truck mm. and their bathroom and kitchen is the, the petrol <coughs> station, you know, and the amenities that are provided by that. And so this, you know, how do we, how do we think about what the act of pausing is for a truck driver. Wow. Right? And so... Well, that's kind of a good note to end on. I bet you none of you have thought about the pause for a truck driver. So that <laughs> hold that thought. <laughs> and uh, thank you so much, Amy. Oh, no, so. Terrific. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Hi. Hi, Eugenia. This is Eugenia Flynn, which I, I still haven't... We haven't had a chance to say hi. No, hi. <laughs> hi. How's it going? How are you? Good. I have a giant microphone in my face. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to move it down a little. Oh, I can't. Okay. You all right? Can everybody hear me? Straight into it. Yeah, sure. Okay, thanks. Um, before we kick off, do you want to just explain some of your background and what you're currently involved in and... Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm currently the CEO of The Social Studio, which is a social enterprise in Collingwood. And we use fashion and hospitality as a vehicle for engaging uh, refugee and new migrant communities. And we do education and employment programs with them. And uh, I'm also a writer. Um, so do mostly kind of op-ed stuff and literary non-fiction at the moment and a little bit of fiction as well and um, mostly work in the arts so I'm an arts worker by trade um, and work with communities around community organizing and community development but particularly through art and culture. Great I actually I've, I've, I, I have a funny feeling that this word pause when we think about our current political state that's going on in in um in the world and also um the issues relating to um refugees and immigration my question to you is do you think that um is there ever a time when we can actively pause in relation to these situations or is there never a time to pause when we um from an activation, you know, in terms of us having to constantly be on in regards to these issues? Well, I think in terms of any kind of issues, and I work 
at the social studio and I do a lot of um, intercultural work is the way that I would put it. Um, I don't come from a refugee background myself, so um, I mostly do a lot of solidarity work between uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities and other um, communities, particularly of colour. So that would be refugee, new migrant, uh, migrant communities in general. So, you know, I think when we're... That in itself is about solidarity and strategy. So it's one thing to be on the back foot all of the time and to constantly be re reacting to the barrage of things that we have to deal with. But having strategy and foresight um, and taking that moment to pause and to think uh, about what we actually want to do is incredibly important. I think if we think about something, take for example, like the, the stop the forced, the forced closures of communities, particularly in WA and the potential rollout across the rest of the country as well. I mean, um, a lot of the work that was done was um, snap reactions and they were great pieces of work that happened in terms of activism. But I often challenge people about if we knew those communities were tabled in Western Australian Parliament a long time before those announcements were made in terms of the, the WA government had wanted to know the number of uh, people living in those communities, how much they were cost to run, you know, all of those sorts of things. So it's not like people didn't know that that was going to happen. So I think the idea for pause for me is about thinking about strategy, thinking about moving forward. If we think about what's going on at the moment with Trump, people are up in arms about it. I just want to know why people don't care about refugees here. Why are we so caught up in what's happening in America? There was a rally yesterday for it, but there's been planned rallies that have been happening since last year about block the bill. That bill to ban refugees in Australia is actually going to be put to Parliament on Tuesday, we've just discovered. Um, and, you know, if people paused, there's a core group of people, particularly the people that I work with at RISE, refugee survivors and ex-detainees, that have been working around this issue for a long time in terms of block the bill. It's a shame that more people haven't paused to think about that. They take their news from Facebook, they take their news for, and their, their politics from America and they go, oh, well, Trump's doing this and we've got to be up in arms about that. But I challenge people as to why we didn't pause and think about that. That legislation has been slated for a long time now and we should have been acting earlier to be able to stop. We're going to totally ban refugees for life from this country and so people mm -hmm. want to sit and mm -hmm. talk about Trump. We should be talking about what's happening here as well. Yeah, and I think, and absolutely, um, uh, I think we are... <laughs> You know, obviously there's been major issues going on for many, many years now and um, it's, it's quite distressing. Um, one, of the, one of the things that you said in a, a Guardian interview that I was sort of um, quite struck by was, you know, your wish, what, what was your hope for Australia? And it was talking about it being a mature Australia. And just that word mature, um, I think, really resonates quite beautifully when we talk about pause. And for me, I was sort of thinking about, you know, this idea of education and education not in the, um, you know, not in the traditional sense, but how, what are the other ways that we can obviously um, 
engage with community, which you, you do, you know, on an extraordinary level. Um, how do we, how do, what are the strategies that we can start to think about in order to make this country a more mature, have a more mature attitude? I think that one's a really tough one because I think there's two things that, that work in tandem and it's kind of ironic because most of my work is about education and most of my work is about um, holding a space of autonomy and if I can practice my culture over here or if I can put on a show, if I can write a novel that shares my experience, then that will draw other people to it. So, you know, I think that there's that aspect about hearts and minds. A, a friend of mine um, was talking about how, um, it's funny, he'd, he'd studied uh, constitutional law at Harvard. He's a, a Wiradjuri man. And he was discussing how the way that they've been able to make amendments or changes to their constitution, which is very similar to Australia as well, is about hearts and minds campaigns. So how you can change hearts and minds um, and be able to then create the kind of pieces of legislation or the structural, what we would call structures and institutions and systems, though that the change on that level. And, and how one leads to the other. I mean, I think that you need to have those two things in tandem. Mm -hmm. So whilst I can sit here and say, I'm going to write a novel um, that is, you know, pro-black, that's feminist, and that's my literary arts practice, and I hold that space. I would hope that the genuine authenticity that comes out of that work leads to people being attracted to it. But if people are constantly fed the idea that my culture is inferior, mm. they're never going to have an ear that's open to that. So it's kind of a push and a pull mm. thing. So I think that um, structural change is also incredibly important to happen at the same time. And I suppose that's where strategy comes into it. Yeah. Thinking about pausing and taking a moment to think about what do we, what's the end goal? And, you know, if we look back at um, what's happening with refugee policy in Australia, as an example, I mean, we've done the hearts and minds things. I think that a lot of non-refugee um, activists have tried really hard to do the hearts and minds thing, um, to talk about, to, to do that humanising, um, humanising the, the people that are dehumanised and I don't necessarily know that that's worked. I think that that has turned people off mm. um, in a way and I think that also, I do also think that the there hasn't been a strategy in that that talks about refugees f not from a deficit. So it's always, the narrative is always refugees came from this terrible background and then they came to Australia and it was better for them because Australia is so great. So I think that, that kind of, there's no strategy around how can we actually get people to see people as humans without having to put a pity story mm. on the table. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think, you know, and, and, um, and I suppose that's where this idea of education, um, in a way... Uh, the idea of neutralising, you know, how do, how do we, how do we have um, platforms for neutralising um, in order to, um, yeah, the, the idea of equality, how do we neutralise stuff or situations or, do you know what I mean, and, and how, do, how do we actually... Yeah, I mean, I mean, the really radical answer to that is you've got to raise things to the ground and start again. I mean, mm. that's how you get a level playing field. Mm. That's how you can um, have 
you know, a clean slate, mm. as it were. That's how you get neutrality. Because at the moment, I mean, equality is a really funny word. I think that if we're going to work within the system that we have, we need to be talking about equity, which is something quite different to equality. Mm. So, you know, equity is about saying that, you know, um, you know, equality says we're all equal and therefore everybody has a level playing field. But in the system and the structure that we're all unfortunately in, then, you know, equity is a, is a better concept because it understands that there are some people who are 10 paces behind or it understands that there are people who are um, need a hand up um, to be able to achieve that parity with other people. Mm. Yep. Um, so being an architect, um, we're often obviously briefs and contexts and they're, they're all the things that inform us about, you know, how we're... Um, you know, what the space is going to be. What would be your ideal space um, in order to execute what you want to um, achieve? Um, I think that spaces that work with the Australian ecosystem are paramount. It's funny because I'm looking for um, a home at the moment and I just think, what colonial buildings? I'll take a, a little, you know kind of thing about that because I kind of love them. They're very pretty. Um, but they don't work with this environment. And we can't keep transplanting culture from the UK, specifically Britain, like England. We can't keep transplanting that here and thinking it's going to work. We've ruined this environment because that's what the, that's what the colonisers did. So, you know... Why, why didn't we do things like understand that Aboriginal people were growing crops and eat those crops and develop that into our cuisine? Why did we, um, you know, build houses that weren't for this climate? You know, all of those sorts of things. So I think building something that works with this environment is incredibly important for me. I was just looking at um, a company that are doing kind of eco-homes, but they are talking about South African environment. And I was like, I wonder how much that's going to work here. Because it's such a s special and unique environment that we have, um, particularly in this country. And, you know, a city like Melbourne, if you look around you, it's so European looking and, you know... If you think about tourists, when they come here, what are they looking for? They're not necessarily... If you come to a city like Melbourne, you could just go this... It's almost like other cities in the UK. So, you know, I was there in July and just kind of thought, yeah, this isn't too much different and it made me feel like a colonial subject. <laughs> Oops. Um, thank you so much, Eugenia. That was yeah. great. Thanks thank you. for the questions. Hello. Everybody, this is Daniel. We had a little bit of a chat beforehand. How do you say your last name, Daniel? Teitelbaum. Teitelbaum. I was saying Tettelbaum in my head. So Teitelbaum. It's not a bad one. Teitelbaum. Yeah, it means date tree. Date tree. Yeah. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. It's nice. I Thanks. like that. <laughs> um, I really like dates. And there's a beautiful... Um, 
dreaming story about how date palms came to the central desert and um you know western science just confirmed that so i thought that was really interesting cool. but yeah anyway mm. if you eat enough dates and and prunes as well you'll be forced into a moment of pause oh really yeah. yes yeah okay <laughs> good point um so daniel could you tell us a little bit about yourself yeah, uh, so um, my role, I'm the head of content at the School of Life in Australia. Uh, and so the School of Life is an educational institution that's dedicated to developing emotional intelligence. Uh, and we do that through the help of philosophy and culture and um, uh, literature, film, I guess, all of culture, what people have created. Um, and I guess we look for the wisdom on how to live wisely, how to live well um, in our contemporary society. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was really interested when I was sort of reading up on you, because obviously we've only met today, um, and thinking specifically about the work of the School of Life on emotional intelligence. And I wondered if you could just sort of talk a little bit more about the reason why the School of Life was set up specifically to look at emotional intelligence mm. as a concept and maybe what emotional intelligence is. Sure. Uh, so the school actually started in the UK um, by Alain de Botton, who is an author and philosopher. Uh, him and actually a number of other thinkers who wrote a, a bunch of material uh, classes, essentially. Um, and, and it came from uh, them having gone through quite a privileged education, uh, higher education system, tertiary education, uh, having come away, learnt a lot of things, none of which was meant to be applied to their everyday living. Uh, so we read great books, we study film, we study psychology, philosophy, uh, but in higher education we don't directly apply that to how we might, you know, navigate our relationships or um, all of the kind of emotional concerns that life throws at us at different points. And so they wanted to apply that body of the humanities, essentially, uh, to everyday living. Yeah. And, and that's kind of how, how it began. And it began with a series of classes. And then um, I guess there's a speaker series where we ask contemporary thinkers uh, to yeah, apply their field to everyday living in some way. And do you find that that's been well received? I was having a look and I saw some of the classes sell out really quickly. Do you find that people, particularly in Australia and with our culture, are looking for that emotional intelligence and, you know, wanting to pause on their life and think about those kinds of ideas and have those feelings and those yeah. revelations. Yeah, it's, I mean, particularly because of the cultural similarities between Melbourne and the UK, it's been taken up very well. I mean, we're a particularly affluent society and so you, you need to have some level of privilege, both time-wise and financially, to step back from life, to, to step out and take the time to pause and, and think about how it can be different. Yeah. Um, but yeah, people have taken to it very well. Uh, I think a big part of it, and one of the, I guess, larger scale trends is, I guess, a loss of religion as a locus for meaning, as a place to look to for purpose. And so guidance, um, there, isn't, there aren't a lot of places that we point to for guidance. And so I guess the, the idea is that everybody else who has thought or written or created something before can, can be a, a place of guidance. And so we want to provoke and nourish and console people with all of these ideas. Um, yeah. And so then, so you sort of said people who have thought about these things before, are there people like contemporary thinkers that are showing us new 
forms of emotional intelligence or new readings on that, new ideas? Is there, any, is there anything mm. coming out of what you're doing with School of Life at the moment that, you know, might be we could draw some meaning from about contemporary society? Mm. I mean, I, I guess when, when we um, are thinking about emotional intelligence, we're talking about being able to navigate life's difficulties, life's emotional concerns, and we all have similar and different ones at different points and it's everything from how do I find a job I love, how do I uh, make my relationship work, how do I choose a partner, stay with a partner, leave a partner, the whole love realm. Um, and then, you know, a lot about ourselves. How do I stay calm? How do I be confident? How do I have better conversations? Which is one of our classes and a really interesting one. Yeah. Uh, so I, I guess I can give you what I like from that class, which I picked out as a relating to pause. Uh, and it, there's a book by a woman named Sarah Maitland called The Book of Silence. Uh, and I haven't read the book, but... Somebody has and wrote a class about it, and I've read the class. Um, and the uh, advice that she talks about um, the pauses in conversation and what value they have, yeah. and the fact that in a moment of pause in conversation, you have the opportunity to, uh, I guess, acknowledge the person you're talking to, mm. perhaps think a little bit more about your tone, your pace, yeah. and you can deepen the. In exchange in a conversation. Uh, another really interesting... Right like now. I'm doing now. Huh. Um, and what was really interesting is that we have very different um, cultural benchmarks of what we consider acceptable as a length of pause in a conversation before we have to rush in with something. Uh, and what I found interesting was that... Uh, I, I can't remember you know, all the different numbers, like two seconds for Britain, three seconds for us here. And the longest was Japan. Yeah. Uh, and in a Japanese conversation, a conversation between two Japanese people, you can have a five or six or seven second pause without, yes. uh, without it being awkward in any way. Yeah. Uh, and what that does to the quality of your conversation is really interesting, gets deeper, more meaningful. So yeah. that's, I guess, one snippet of an example of where we take a contemporary thinker, take something they've written and apply it to a way that we, something in everyday life, which is our conversations. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I find that really interesting because I think that people, um, you could be really suspicious or uncomfortable with people that take really long pauses um, and people want to fill silences. I had a friend, I, I, I guess maybe, you know, I've always been attracted to people that talk a lot because I'm a naturally quiet person, I'm a listener. So, um, yeah, I mean, my husband is very loud and very ADHD he's not here um, and you know it kind of goes 100 miles an hour and I think that he it's funny he has trouble with people understanding what he says and um, yeah and I'm always like I just need some quiet time so I'm just going to go sit in the other room and be quiet how do your conversations go is it just him um, no not necessarily I think he draws out conversation from me which is nice um but there's also, I have a very explosive personality sometimes. So there's lots of screaming like, just shut up. Because he's a musician. So he has like, we call it his sensory gym. Which is kind of funny. He's got his guitar and his laptop and the TV. And he's playing like five different guitar songs at the same time and trying to play all of them. So <laughs> there's lots of screaming <laughs> in our house, which is fun. Um, but yeah. Mm. Yeah. What do you um, find is the most uh, popular with kind of your fan base, mm. as it were? 
how to find a job you love is something that everybody wants to do and thinks about often. Yeah. Uh, and it's also something you think about multiple times throughout your life. Uh, almost every two, three years now, it seems. Like if you're in a job for more than three years, you're doing, you're doing well. Yeah. Um, so that's a very popular class. How to be confident is a really popular class as well. Uh, everybody wants to know how to be confident, but I guess it's the kind of underpinning skill to a lot of other of life skills is to be able to represent yourself confidently. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Yeah. Do you find that the people that come to your classes are mostly younger people? Because I guess if we think back to what a couple of speakers have mentioned and I know Nuka talk about, talked about earlier, that idea of pausing really is a privilege and, and you yeah. mentioned it as well. That ability to be able to stop, you've got to have the financial resources. And I guess, you know, if we think about Maslow's hierarchy of need, all of your base level, you know, I feel safe and I've got food and, you know, I've got all of those things fulfilled. So now I can think about um, how to have a meaningful relationship. You know, if I think about generations before, people just like, you know, got married, had kids, and people worked in jobs and didn't think about, is this bringing meaning to my life, this work? I'm not passionate about it, mm. you know, that kind of thing. Is it mostly a younger set? No. Um, it's mostly – but that, I like – I mean, Maslow's hierarchy, you've kind of – that's exactly the tier that our, we're aiming at is we're trying to serve that social need to yeah. provide help there. Yeah. Um, but, no, I mean, we have a class, How to Face Death – so that's a little bit older usually, yeah. Um, yeah. and uh, which is a good class. I recommend it. Um, no, it de- I mean it depends. I mean whatever the subject is, will get people all the way from their you know mid twenties to seventies. So there is really quite a spread. But I mean there's like a bell curve, thirties to forties professional in some form of tr- life transition is what we get a lot of yeah. to our various classes. But hmm. yeah, I mean I, it's an opportunity to pause and step back and think differently about some aspect of your life. And so then if that, like I understand that's your target market to look at people or to service people that do have that privilege, then what are your thoughts on, um, you know, essentially self-actualization for people that don't have that privilege um, and people who, you know, may have to, I've got to work two jobs and, you know, or I'm on the brink of homelessness that kind of thing like what are your I mean obviously that's um not the area that you have to service or you know that um you've just articulated that you're servicing a different Mm. cohort of people but what are your thoughts about you know um bringing the rest of society along Mm. uh I I mean it's in an ideal world we our material would be widely accessible um and I guess we We've been around three years now, and I'd yeah. say that we look very different now in terms of our accessibility than we did three years ago. Uh, we just ran a, a really interesting festival in the West called Think West, um, which uh, basically activated a whole lot of community organizations on that side of yeah. the world. Um, Asylum Seeker Resource Centre is just one, but quite a few. Uh, and I guess the collaboration is a big way that we try to cr- uh, offer ac- create accessibility and work with different groups of people that might not get to come to our classes. So, yeah, that's one way. Awesome. Yeah. And so um, I just wanted to ask one last question because I heard the bell yep. go. But um, I wanted to talk a little bit about your previous work with Small Giants and just to talk about, um, I guess it's more your thoughts on, you know, pausing Small Giants is an organisation that is trying to um, 
you know, improve society, I suppose, uh, in a way. And I just wanted to know your thoughts on pausing to be able to achieve that, you know, about giving or thinking about where we put money or what kind of programs we have that might better society. Um, well, I mean, small giants, they, they look to invest in social enterprises and small businesses trying to do something positive in the world. Uh, I guess what I can say from my experience is that they're working with small giants is that pausing to think, asking a difficult question that will stop you in your tracks has actually been a big part of the culture uh, there, which has been really interesting for both yeah. personal development but also to stay on track with the mission, with the purpose. So asking difficult questions and stopping to think is just has to be a part of any culture of someone trying to create change, I think. I definitely like that idea and I think that's a good point to stop on, that thinking about um, the idea of pausing is not just about being comfortable but also about being uncomfortable and being mm. challenged. Mm. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hello, Julie. Hello. Welcome. Thanks. Would you like to introduce yourself? I will. You will? Um, yeah, I can say a bit not? about you, but... Well, you tell me about me. Well, you say... Okay, well, I was, I've just got your bio that, that we've all heard, that you're in the Flurry Institute of Neuroscience and Mental Health. Um, you're a clinician, scientist, researcher, etc. Um, is there anything you want to kind of add to generally what... I guess to say that I am really interested in brain injury, that's my main area of focus, and that I really like this topic because it's made me think a lot. Mm. Yeah, me too. Uh, yeah, and I guess one thing that I found interesting is, is some of your research focuses on uh, early intervention into stroke patients, uh, and we kind of heard... Uh, before, Kenny mentioned he had a spinal injury that took him out for a year, and uh, I was bedridden for two days recently. Um, and, yeah, I guess that's one thing. Injury, brain injury especially, stroke, takes us out, forces us to pause. And, um, yeah, you're working with people who experience that and also to help them get out of that very quickly. So um, where has that led you in your thoughts around pause? Uh, I think... Uh, watching how people have to put their life on hold, which I think is a, an expression that we all know about. And Kenny, I think, raised that. And any of us who've had this experience, uh, especially for prolonged uh, periods, it's, it's, um, it's tough. It's very tough. And I think it's quite uh, a privilege when you are trying to work with someone who's going through that um, and make the period meaningful as well as obviously help them with their recovery. Um, I think what's really interesting as well is what happens when they've finished that process, um, which I don't know that you ever do, but um, when they come back, so you have people in a particular confined space and most of the research and things that I do are hospital-based. So I'm interested in how we change care within hospitals and, but also how we change the hospitals themselves to potentially make them more um, healing. And uh, there's the biggest, the most amazing thing to see is when people leave and then six months later they come back just to say hello because you've been a very important part of their life and they look completely different. They're so different. They, their face is different. 
their whole way of holding themselves is different and you know that they've come out of the pause. And even if their reality and what they're living with is very different to what they were before, they've embraced that next step. Mm. And that's, that's a real privilege when you get to uh, mm. see people like that. And so do you see really big shifts in life direction because they've had this moment of time to stop and think? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, uh, and this is where it's challenging, of course, you either are forced to um, make a change um, and that's very difficult for some people and, and some people see it as an absolute opportunity. Mm. And I've got a... I was thinking the other day, and I've worked in stroke for 30, 30 years now, and why did I start? And it was because I was 16 and my uncle had a stroke and he was only 50. And when I went to see him in the hospital, um, he, it was really, I saw him while he was doing his rehabilitation and I thought, that's a cool job. And I actually was very lucky to have that because I thought, I'd like to do that. That's the job I want to do. And so I had a direction, unlike I was saying to you before, my 17-year-old son who has no idea of what he might want to do. And he's finding that very tough. Um, But um, what was fascinating is that my uncle was actually a fairly sort of grumpy guy and I'd known him, you know, 16 years and he didn't really talk to anyone before he had a stroke, he, he would speak to people because he thought you were influential or interesting, um, but wouldn't really bother. And his pause in that hospital, which lasted for six months, he came out a completely different person and he could talk to the plumber and he could talk to um, someone walking down the street and he was kinder and different and so I think that's actually, uh, that was really interesting to see that transition. Mm. Yeah, great. Uh, the other thing that you do that I'm very interested in is the relationship between architecture and healthcare, uh, and particularly redesigning spaces for, to be more therapeutic, I, I guess. Um, yeah, what's that, what's that work and what have you discovered? Well, this is um, something newish for me, and um, for those of you who don't really understand um, health and medical research and... Uh, I don't even, and I've been working in it for a really long time, but the way we work is that um, if you have an idea, you then write a grant and you usually take a couple of months to write the grant and then you submit the grant in with 4,000 or 5,000 other people and then 10% of you get the money. So that's, and then we do the same thing for our own salaries. So it's a really, it's actually a very um, fraught kind of it's very similar there's a lot of similarity with art and other areas like that which um, people don't realize but we have a lot of affinity I think Um, so I've been though working in this area for a couple of years we haven't cracked the funds that we need to do everything with but we're going ahead anyway and the idea really came about because um, having worked in hospitals for a really long time um, and then starting to get think Well, the hospital, the environment itself is actually part of the care that we provide. It's, it's, we used to, if we just medicalise everything, we just think it's what you do in it that's the main thing. But in fact, it's, it's not. And there is a a evidence, there's a, a literature that's growing around research looking at design and how if you change a small thing, what impact does that have on someone's, um, sense of well-being? And we had fun with this at uh, one of our M Pavilion workshops where we used virtual reality and 
the public came and put the VR headsets on and we showed them different scenarios within um, hospital and outdoor environments. And they were very clear about which were the preferences. The so clinical that, fluorescent light MRI scanner experience or the outdoor nature green sun? Uh, so one of them was really simple. It was a, a waiting room, or actually a clinic room, identical clinic room. Uh, one had a window that looked out onto the garden and one didn't. And within, with everyone who looks at this, you see there's very clear patterns of, because I love data, so you see there's very clear patterns uh, that people have uh, different feelings of calmness when they're exposed to, uh, obviously, a view um, compared to not. Now, that's very simplistic at that level, but these, uh, what I'm interested in is uh, looking at what our real physiological responses are, not just our preferences, but how do we physically respond to the built environment. And that, that's what I'm really interested in doing. So at the moment you're collecting information, data mm -hmm. around it. Are there, is there any experimentation going on? Yeah. Yeah, we're doing, we're, we're building up. We haven't, haven't done this experiment yet, but we are using virtual reality, which is why we were doing the, um, the workshop here. Um, because VR gives you an opportunity to actually model something that's quite lifelike and and then you can interrogate it in a quite a a structured way mm. uh, and that's what we need for science right we need to be able to control the experiment to a degree so that we can be confident that the data we get out is real mm. uh, i remember i can't remember where i saw it it was probably sbs at some point the, of an mri scanner that was painted to look like like snakes and ladders to make it more appealing for children who get really scared going into that room and that it was highly effective. Um, is there anything kind of practically happening in a hospital in Australia, in Melbourne, that, that's interesting? And well, I think there's some really cool stuff happening. Uh, the, um, but we're, we're sort of behind with the Internet of Things. So, you know, the Internet of Things is working well with banking. And, but in health, we're a bit slow. Mm. Um, but the Children's Hospital actually has a partner program with uh, a developer um, who makes all kinds of um, games and apps and they've created uh, tools that are really helpful to try and understand children's pain at different ways that are much more engaging than have a nurse coming every half an hour saying how's your pain on a scale of one to ten which is what we would have done before uh, and they've made it into a, a game they've gamified it okay Cool. So I think that we will see a lot more of this um, and that takes a lot of time. So there's a lot of pausing in there mm. before we get to that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the, other, the other thing that I uh, wanted to, I guess, pause, pivot and talk about was women in science, uh -huh. um, particularly because we've just had our first female Nobel Prize winner of mathematics ever, um, which is great. Uh, yeah, and you're, you, I know a lot of your work is dedicated to Make, uh, I guess making it easier for women to be and stay in science. Uh, so um, my question, I guess, most broadly is a little bit, I don't, I don't know if I should ask, it's too obvious, why aren't there more women in science? But I guess more interestingly, um, what are some interesting things that, or things that might happen in the future that can, are trends going in a better way and what might push it that direction? Yeah, I, mean, I think we have this a lot. Of course, this is all over. Um, the issue of uh, keeping really good people who are in a, a field into the field. So in the example in our in science is that about 50% of uh, new graduates who finish their degrees and finish their PhDs are women and then once you get to the top 
uh, there's about 8% who stay and make it um, up to that top level. And we, science is creative. Um, it is creative. It's, and this is where the pause, I think, comes in as well, um, because it, it's become much more clearer to me in the last few years that it's so vital that you have time to stop, because that's when the creativity is allowed to come in. Otherwise, you're just constantly sort of running to keep up. Um, and I think uh, what happens, uh, again, if I, I give it a pause theme, is that um, in science, and it's not the absolutely not the only reason, but it's one of the barriers, is that uh, women who pause to have children or look after um, their families end up coming off a pathway that is supposed to look like this. And if there's only a tiny number who get funded, uh, then once they fall off the pathway by taking that pause, they can't get back on. Mm. And so it's part of how we fund it and it's also part of the culture generally about the fact that if many of you did um, an unconscious bias uh, questionnaire around science, you you'd might be surprised that you actually see most scientists as having a white lab coat and being male and white. Mm. Mm. I think I don't. I think we're basically at time now, so I shouldn't start a new theme of questioning. Uh, and rather, thank you for your time, and thanks for having us. You're hey, hello, hello, hello. I brought my coffee. I hope no one minds. Please get yourself a coffee. As well. <laughs> Do you need to pour one before we start? Do I'll you pour, need pour as we go. I'll pour as we go. Okay. Thank okay. you. Fantastic. <laughs> but this was very appropriate that they put us together. Did you? Yeah, I did. Because uh, when I was looking up Penny's work uh, and the website, and you can tell us a bit about, there's a lot of um, interesting stuff criticising academics. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. Subconscious. I didn't consciously no, do that. I, I think it's great. And I actually, I agree with you. So, okay. tell, tell people a bit about you and... Okay. You. Well, I have been a writer um, and, uh, and I come from... My business is called The Good Copy, um, which we call a writing studio. It's also a, a writing school, I guess. Um, and if any... Like, I always have to preface this by saying it's, na it's named after... If you went to school before, like, everyone had a computer. Amy, you'll know. We went to the same school, I just feel. Um, you, you, when you had to write your essays out and you'd, and you'd go to your friend, have you done your good copy yet? Does anyone remember that? Some, like there's at least one person that's remembering. That's what it is, but everyone who comes into the good copy, or, well, a majority of them just ask us to photocopy stuff, which is, which is a shame. Well, they don't yeah. ask you so, to do Well, they don't know what we are, but anyway, we, we say we're a writing studio and we have a, a grammar school called, um, called Stop grammar time, which is also very 90s and a lot of people don't know what that reference is. Um, anyway, um, and I guess um, if I have subconsciously like leaked a, a suspicion of academia, I, I don't know how I've done that, but I think maybe I really struggled at uni in particular with writing. I had a very hard time with it and you might have some insight into this, Julie, because it's I know Freud said we're all in love with our pain and I think I have probably in my life gravitated towards doing this thing that I am terrified of. Um, and my experience basically was coming out of uni, it was awful, I just scraped through, 
then went to TAFE and did what I describe as a trade school course in editing. And I was like, oh, right, okay, this is how it works, you know, and the stress of writing really lifted for me at that point. And that's, pro that's the motivation behind the grammar school in that all of us, just that we can sit together and go, okay, none of us actually know this stuff. And it can help. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> not that it's like a public service, you know, it's not, but it, it I, I, I am quite, I do get revved up about people who don't, who, who don't realise how difficult writing is mm. and also don't realise like the value of just saying something straight. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Which academics don't do. So that might be my other thing. Well, I mean, not all of them. You say things straight. Yes, yeah, so I was telling I was telling Penny a story about my first piece of academic writing as a PhD student, and I gave it to my supervisor, who said to me, "That would go very well in the Woman's Weekly, Julie." <laughs> oh, cutting! And, um, I, and 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 when you said that to me, I said, "Yeah, probably because it made sense." Yeah, and it, in fact, yeah. I've embraced it. So yeah. I've embraced a style that is about communication. What I liked in, in going to your website and having a look, and you've got some lovely little videos and sort of education, um, and I really do think this is definitely part of the pause, is the grammar bit. So we're going to explore this a little bit more because okay. to me, even as someone who writes a lot and I have to communicate as part of what I do, um, there are lots of moments when I'm standing you know, I'm paused over my keyboard going, is it that or is it which? Or is it... Yeah. <laughs> and you've done this lovely little segment on your website where you've gone through common common things that yeah. people get hung up about. Yeah. And you're trying to help people just get to grips with them. Mm. But there's also another layer to it, which I like. So do you uh, want to talk about that? I think maybe what... I think what I'm discovering more and more, like I, I come to grammar as someone who was very fearful of writing and have found just thinking about the nuts and bolts of writing to be very clarifying. Like I've found it to, has improved my writing. So I have that approach to it. Um, and more and more in kind of sharing with other people and teaching and I'm realising that teaching grammar is really just about busting this crazy paranoia and all these myths that seem to have a stranglehold. And I, I don't know why people get so crazy about grammar. They get pedantic. They're shooting people down on social media. When we did that interview for The Guardian, which was crazy, I mean, it had... This is going to sound like a lie, but it's not a lie. That article about grammar on The Guardian got more hits, like, than the release of the Panama Papers. I, I know. Like... I know, it, like, it's, I'm not even bragging, but what I'm saying is, what is going on? Why are people so stressed about it? I think, I think what people want in life maybe is just, is this right or is this wrong? Right. And that either comes from the fact that they're not in, at all interested in language or they're, they're just super fixated on language. It's one or the other. It's this extreme. They want it to be black and white, and that's not what language is. Language is not black and white. Language is made by the people who speak it. Language changes all the time. And so in casting around for this kind of clarity, people cling to these rules that they've heard. And the problem is the rules they've heard aren't even really rules. Like, as much as you can say there are rules in grammar, and it's really hard to say there are rules in grammar. Like, my view of what rules are is, did someone just understand what you said? Then you did okay, you know? Um, 
then you can go another level and you can go, well, um, okay, well, what could you deem to be a rule? Okay, a rule would be, is this sentence structurally broken or not? Like architecturally, is this sentence holding up? And I say, okay, that's a rule. But then the most of the stuff people talk about isn't rules at all. It's just these weird preferences. Like the most common one is um, that you're not allowed to start a sentence with a conjunction. Does anyone know that? Kenny said to me before, what, what, what's, he thought I was talking about conjunctivitis. <laughs> um, but a conjunction is like and, but, or, nor, for, so, and yet you, then you've got your subordinating conjunctions, if, you know, even though, um, because... Um, and uh, hands up who's been told not to start a sentence with a conjunction. Okay. See, everyone, right? We had a girl in our grammar class in November who had been marked down five points on a uni essay for starting a sentence with and. And this is the one thing that unites all grammarians around the world, even though they love arguing, especially British versus Americans. They're all united on this front. And all of them, to some degree, have a statement on their website that says, it's all right to start a sentence with a conjunction. And this isn't a new thing either. This is like, this has always been the case, you know, um, but we're stuck on it. And I, I don't know, maybe you can answer me why our brains need this certainty. Well, I was actually going to go more to social and culture, so rather than neuroscience. Right. I mean, probably someone has studied it at the neuroscience level, but I haven't. <laughs> but um, I was going to ask you, out of those people that, you know, commented or tweeted or whatever the response On the, on the grammar thing, yeah. yeah. If you looked at their demographics, their colour, their age, where they lived, what do you think it would look like? Oh, I think... I mean, the thing is, this argument exists completely in the... the, the what do you call it? It's kind of like a... It's not a demographic. It's, a, it's the, the people who use standard English are the people who use the language of power. Yeah. Right. That's what standard English is. Um, we always teach at the start. I mean, it's really important to contextualise the study of grammar, right, and not just go out there going, this is right, this is wrong, because what you're really doing is talking about the language that everyone uses. Um, and we always say there are different words that are important to understand. One of those words is register. Another of those words is idiom. Um, all these words are about context. Being right is about being right for the context, right? So people who correct other people on the grounds that that mid-register, that always wears a pant and a hard shoe type of grammar is right and other people's way of speaking is wrong can't, are not getting it. Yeah. Like, they're not getting it. And But those people are coming from this centre, that like this kind of powerful place where they view standard English as correct and they police it. Yes. It's full on. But, but the thing is, we, I always say, okay, well, I say this at the start, but now we're going to embark on a study of correct standard English. And, but we do it at least, at least at the start, we say, know that this is the language of power. If people are excluded from these, this skill set, they're excluded from the ability to write grants, to write a, you know, a job application that is going to get accepted. Um, I, I do think the people who police this stuff, I picture them as a kind of like annoying... 60-year-old white man, sorry. <laughs> I kind of do. Maybe it's not true. I have met other pedants. And I think all of us has a little pedant inside. I think there's something every one of you could say, oh, I hate it when that happens. Do you have one from of those? language, from a language. Yeah. Point. Yeah, we were talking about a few. I'm not that... I actually, I think I came to the realisation early that it, 
writing, even in science writing, is about you're trying to actually communicate. And science and needs to do that, right? <laughs> much better than it does, absolutely. So, you know, we don't do that well. And that, that should be what we do and, yeah. and we really don't. Um, there's a few good YouTube channels about science that I've been watching lately. Oh. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. If anyone wants to know them, I'll talk, talk to you later. Yeah, so it might be yeah. more about the spoken language. We might be better at it than the written language. Yeah. Because there's things like, um, and again, this is parking back to... A while ago, but my PhD soup, one of my PhD supervisors, the other one, <laughs> made me write words like serendipitous and parsimonious. And I oh. can't say, can't I just say simple? Yeah. You, you know, why <laughs> please. do I, please, why do I need to use these? You know, and I, that got annoying. That was what the trouble, that was my trouble at uni. Because I was just, as I say now, like I always quote Dennis Denudo, like, I was stuck on the vibe of the thing. Like I was, I was trying to write all my essays from a vibe, which was like how they should sound. And now I realise you should just write them based on the ideas. I know that seems obvious, but it does. Yeah. And, and I always teach like, you can just add bells and whistles later. Like just write the thing down and do it as you'd say it, right? And then, but the whole time you can go, I can just add adverbs later, like adverbs. And, and on those sentence, those adverbial conjunctions, which I call the uni words, like words like nevertheless. You know those? Yeah. You can just drop them in at the end. And it's much better to add, it's add bells and whistles at the end than to try and turn a pile of bells and whistles into a, like a good essay. I agree with you. Yeah. Now, before we finish, <laughs> because you're obviously someone who is high energy. Yeah. What do you do to pause? Oh, my God. Great question. Um, uh, I vape. Well, I used to smoke, but now I inhale a kind of vapour of nicotine um, and I drink coffee and um, I watch video honestly I, I watch videos about physics like I spend like maybe an hour a day doing that at night because I find it so hard like and confusing that that I sort of something in my brain disconnects Wow! Y you know what so I mean like to challenge it well, it's not that I'm being challenged. It's almost that I'm just confused, but I'm focused on a thing that I don't understand. So I'm just like, well, I don't know. Yeah. Science helps me in that way. Yeah. Very good. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. Yeah, absolutely. So I'll leave. Thank Bye. you. <laughs> Hi, mate. Hey, can we just, like, you guys have been sitting here for, like, nearly two hours. Can we just get up? If, you can, if you're in oh, a position good idea. to get up. Um, yeah, if you're able to stand up, just, I don't know, give it a little shake. It's... It's been a big day. <laughs> All right, that'll do. I'll pour some coffee. I get to interview you now. Yay! Yes. Okay. Have we got enough time? Yes, we've got enough time. Um, I, you didn't introduce yourself at the start. No, no, but, I didn't. Well, you said your name. Yeah. But um, can you maybe tell us a bit more about? I'd like to sort of know how you describe yourself in a bio, and also what do you do day to day, like for your work? Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, so my name's Nayuka. I'm a Gunokurnai Gunajamara Wiradjuri and Yorta Yorta woman. Uh, so for those of us in the pavilion who aren't up to scratch with our black geographies, basically my family are from all over Victoria, um, or, you know, Victoria is a structure. But anyway, um, yeah, so from down this way and then also parts of New South Wales as well. Um, yeah, so... The bi bios suck. Mm. They actually suck. <laughs> and I never know how to 
I've just taken to like making shit up. Um, I did a thing for someone last year and I was just like, Melbourne fashionista. Um, <laughs> why not? Yeah. I'm just like, if you, if you say it enough, like eventually, I don't know, like Vogue will be like, hey, Nayuka, what's up? <laughs> um, yeah, so bios really suck. But um, day to day, I work at um, Seed Indigenous Youth Climate Network. So I started um, that job like December last year. So Re- recently. Yeah, yeah, super recently, working with young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people um, in schools and building a schools program to um, radicalise the youth. No, um, well, kind of. Um, Yeah, so, yeah, building the capacity of young people to fight climate change. Um, Yeah, and also, so that's three days a week. Um, And then I'm really giving you an itemised list. This is good. Um, And then on the other days, um, I also do, like, facilitation. You do writing. Yeah, and have, like, last year started freelance writing as well. Um, yeah. Okay. I wa- uh, thank you for that more detailed intro. Yeah. Um, y- I'll, I'll start by talking, then you talk. Yeah. Okay, because that's how this that's goes. That's how a conversation that's how this goes. happens. Um, so, I've been thinking a lot, like, obviously, as we all have, you know, over the past month, um, about... And, and actually... I want you to know that things you that you have said in the past month, like online and or actually videos that I saw online, have changed the way I just my day to day thinking, but also my actions. Um, and you know we can go into the detail of that, but I, but I, and if I sit that idea next to this other idea that I've been reading about this morning, which is this girl, Amy Spears who started a campaign that's called um, Miranda Must Go and she's campaigning to stop the retelling of this fictional um, story about Miranda disappearing at Hanging Rock based on the idea that it eclipses the real story of Hanging Rock, which is there were Wurundjeri people who disappeared in, in that country. Um, and... And in reading her writing about it, and I think she has a really good piece on Broadly or Vice. Yeah, Vice. She, yeah, was it Vice? I haven't read she it ta- yet, but yeah. Yeah, but she talked about... Um, sorry, my, my question's going so long. She talked about um, this artist who's got the, a crazy name that I can't pronounce called Horst Hoheisel, right? And his and her project is based on his, his suggestion for the Holocaust Memorial mm. in Berlin. And his suggestion is, in, is just singular... And it is, the memorial should be that we blow up the Brandenburg Gate because you can't commemorate the destruction of a people by building a new construction. And, and in thinking about this, I've been thinking about kind of the things you've said and the things that have changed my behaviour. And, and what strikes me in this theme of pause is that it's kind of your job to, to say these things because people like me need to hear them. But when does that job, like, end? You know, like, to what extent do you feel a tension between this kind of desire to speak constantly and, and exhaustion? Mm. Is that too... I'm sorry about the question was so long. No, that, no, that's a good question. I think the... I don't think it's my job. I think... Um, well, actually, it's 
a tension I think we all have, and if you've got anything to add as well, um, please feel free to throw in. But I think, like, we were talking about Maslow's hierarchy of needs before, and as a young black woman, most of my... For the most part, like, yeah, as a black person and as a black woman in this country, we are some of the most... Well, structurally, we are the most disadvantaged people in terms of experiencing poverty and violence and other things like that. But on a personal level... Um, and this is a tension a lot of black people who are doing okay have, I think, like, on one hand, I do experience that and still mm. experience that in my, like, family life and stuff, but also on other, in other respects, I am very privileged. I've had a, I've had, like, in terms of, like, a white education, I've been, you know, I've gone through school. And You're I've, a fashionista. Yes, <laughs> uh, clearly. Yeah. Um, and, like, I've been through school and have been through uni and I've got, you know, like, I'm confident enough to be able to do shit like this. Um, so I've got a lot of um, privileges as well. So there's this tension that a lot of us have. Like, I've got this privilege. I'm, the world is so fucked up at the moment. I have to do something. And so the, the awesome thing about this country is that there is always something to do. <laughs> um, there's always a fight. Um, so it's, there is always a tension between wanting to rest and, like, um, pausing for either strategy or pausing for self-care or pausing, um, like, because you're having a breakdown or whatever um, and to just keep going because, like, if you don't do it, you know, who else is going to do it or whatever. Um, yeah, it's a, it is a tension. Mm. But it is the... It is an... Imp it's a thing that is imposed on people. It is, like, an expectation... As a, as a young black person who often is around, I don't know, like mm. I often find myself in a position where I hear comments or something happens or I'm lucky enough to like be able to write something and people might read it. So it's like, you know, you feel an obligation to yeah. say something yeah. um, or, you know, connect other people up so that they can say something. Mm. Um, so it's, yeah, it's hard to know... It's, it's really hard and I wonder, like, what it must be like to just go through life and be like, yeah, I'm going to go mm. to the, I don't know, to the beach and it's going to be, mm. oh, the world's fine and... Yeah. I don't, yeah, I don't know. It's, it's a weird one. But I know I'm not the only one. I'm not the only one at all who mm. experiences that. There's, yeah, I think for those of us who are fortunate enough to be in a position where we, we can write or we can speak or we have the ears of people, then I think there is a sense of... Res there is a responsibility. Yeah. Um, but also, it is an imposition um, that often... Like, settlers just want so much of you. Um, even, like... Am I allowed to swear? Even, like... I swore last year and then I realised that they videoed it. Is this on video? Yeah. Okay. Oh, that... There's okay, great. Okay. Even, like... Just, like, random-ass, like, first-year RMIT journalist students who'll be like, hey, I just saw your video. Um, can I ask you some questions about it? And, like, yo, that's so lovely. But also, like, do you realise that you are, like, not even the first person today or, like, this week mm. or whatever? So it's just interesting, like, how much people expect from you. Mm. But then there's also... A sense of responsibility. Mm. That's a long 
answer it was good though and long question i feel like it ties into a little bit of what eugenia was saying maybe in that we can explore this idea of pause in terms of discomfort as well as comfort mm. and the video that I think you're referring to was the one you made just prior oh, to just Invasion Day oh. on the 20... When was it? The 25th? You were very backlit. Oh, yeah. The I lighting was interesting. Was fucked up. <laughs> whatever. Like, <laughs> fucked up by Eurocentric beauty norms or whatever. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was filmed. I was jet lagged because, speaking of pause, I was over in Europe for about a month um, and then came back and, yeah, the day... Two days after I got back... My mates that get up were like, oi, let's film it today. Yeah. It's like, I'd already cried in the toilet twice at work. Um, you know, yeah. like it was, my hair was fucked. Um, and I was like, oh, sure, let's do it. Um, Why not? Yeah, because there's like, I don't know, sense of responsibility or whatever. Mm. Well, you know, I feel like that, though it wasn't explicit in that video, maybe it was, it certainly got through to me this idea that I tie to that kind of let's blow up the Brandenburg Gate thing, which is that you've got to feel uncomfortable about this because if you don't feel uncomfortable about it, then you are by default just advocating a status quo. Yeah. So, so there is actually no option to be on the fence or inactive, right? And, and, and the way I interpreted that was I, like, I watched your video, then I had to work the next day because I was like, I had to work. Oh, we were nice. working. Yeah. Um, but I was like, I've got to do something that genuinely makes me uncomfortable like that was my take on it so I was like what I'll do is I'll donate an uncomfortable amount of money right <laughs> which isn't that much because I haven't got much money um, <laughs> to the um, like resistance of the Adani mine and then I was like and every time I see Donald Trump on Facebook I'll do the different well, okay every time I see it that will be my cue to read one of the survival stories on NITV and it's been quite an interesting kind of rhythmic intervention into my life that's like Anyway, the point is, you saying stuff made me do that, right? And so I'm getting to my question, I promise, which is, um, okay, if we talk about, you know, um, Aboriginal Australians making up, what is it, 3% of the population or thereabouts, you know, wh whatever that, whatever that number of people does to fight an injustice is not going to achieve anything, really. Like, because if we follow a democratic process, they can't win, right? So... Um, it kind of Other is than our structures that we have at the moment. Yeah, we yeah. yeah. So it kind of is our job, non-indigenous Australians, to do stuff about it constantly, right? So here's my question to you: If we have enough time left, what could we do to give you a break? Oh fuck, I don't know. No, give us some practical things like. Oh, I honestly don't know. And this is the thing, though. Like, people want the hard and fast. They want the give me this, give me that. And actually, I think it's much better for people. People need to feel uncomfortable. No, like, what revolution, when has change ever happened in the world where the people in power felt comfortable? Like, that's never happened, ever. So people really need to get comfortable, be okay with being uncomfortable but also like I can't give the like you know give your money like give give your give your money give up your inheritance give back your land honestly like yeah in terms of the day-to-day -day stuff like share this or like this that's not it mm. people settlers have a moral obligation to give up their privilege because we are still fucked because because and yeah give up your privilege um I don't know what that looks like day to day. I honestly don't. I don't have a BuzzFeed top 10 
decolonisation tips for the settler. I wish that you were talking to Eugenia right now. <laughs> I think, yeah, there's honestly, I think people need to be able to critically be critical. I think that's the most important skill for the settler is to be, be uncomfortable but be critical. Like what is, yeah, so that black people don't have to do this labour all the time. Because there are settlers that get it. There are, they're, they're very rare, but they do get it. Um, yeah, that's um, also, yeah, give up, give your money. Give me your money. Buy me coffee. <laughs> Buy Eugenia coffee. <laughs> Thanks, Nika. Thanks, everyone. Oops, oh my God. I lost it right at the end. Um, that's it. Yeah, that's is that it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is a bit where I do a conclusion. Um, thank you so much. I can't believe oh you spilled my coffee. So wait, I'm just gonna retweet. I can't believe you vaped the entire time you were here. <laughs> Every so often, I'd see like a cloud. Um, cool. How are we going, everyone? Yeah, that's good. Like it's f fucking Saturday. We're doing really well. I'm doing. Speaking of pause, I'm doing Feb fast. I've given up the booze. Um, it's four days in, and I've only had three Dexies, so <laughs> that's, a, that's a joke. Um, it was four. Uh, so, what a, yeah, that was really interesting, and it was really, it feels like we've been here for a long time, but also it kind of went really quick. Um, so, first up, we had Kenny, who kind of forced us to reflect, not forced us, it was quite gentle, um, on pausing, I guess, in, in practice as a creative, and... Then Sue um, helped us think about pause as a kind of like as a plot device or a creative device, which was really, really interesting. Um, and that sort of ebb and flow, light and shade. Um, Amy allowed us to think about how spatial understanding of pausing, um, whether it's a doghouse or a truck stop, um, that, yeah, had a few light bulb moments and that was really, really interesting and the way we interact with space can force us to be quicker or to move slower. Um, Eugenia challenged us to think about pause as a tool for strategy and not necessarily as a reaction to being like overwhelmed or whatever, but as a tool, as a tool to be proactive, um, which is in you know these turbulent times is a really important point to make, I think. Um, Daniel touched on, I guess, pausing and self-actualising um, and how some people can access pausing and some people can't. Um, Julie reflected on how medical experiences and the different responses to, I guess, a medical pause, um, including that of her uncle and how space in which we pause is part of the healing. Um, yeah, the role, that, the role that space plays in that as well, which tied in really nicely with Amy's. Um, and then also that, yeah, that was really interesting around for a lot of women, the pause in the career is often pregnancy and that's, yeah, detrimental. It's a detrimental pause. Um, and then Penny, you just, um, that was, I don't know if it's so much pause, but you, I love the way that you talk about language and power and like I think 
language is, I don't know, the way that you talked about it, remind, I don't know, remind me of the economy, the way that people talk about the economy is this, like, unmovable thing that exists and it is the way that it is and it's not this human construct that can absolutely change. Um, anyway, that was, that was really, really interesting and power to the vape. Um, and finally, myself, I was just on, so I'm not going to reflect on myself. Um, but thank you so much for coming and taking time or pausing on your Saturday. Um, it's really cool to have time to, like, talk about stuff like we're often doing stuff so yeah I mean we were doing stuff but also you're listening um yeah that was fun thank you so much for having us um I'm not sure if any of us are going to be around for a yarn but um maybe we will and if we are maybe we'll want to talk but maybe we won't um yeah so yeah I, I'll leave that in the hands of everyone else but thank you so much it was an absolute pleasure and I've learned a lot um and I'm sure you have as well so thank you